Hi everyone. Welcome back to the Lake Podcast. I'm your host Karthik Nachipan. India has been in the throes of a dramatic digital transformation for the last few decades. The public and private sectors are both propelling tremendous digital consumption growth. The Indian government has enrolled more than 1.2 billion citizens in its biometric digital identity program Aadhaar. and brought more than 10 million businesses onto a common digital platform through a goods and services tax telecom firms have fueled internet subscriptions and data consumption which quadrupled in both 2017 and 2018 helping bridge a digital divide digital ecosystems are already visible reshaping consumer producer interactions in sectors like agriculture healthcare retail logistics and other sectors how did such digital interventions emerge and evolve what role did the indian state play in it and what other factors contributed in this episode i speak to pradeep thomas an associate professor at the university of queensland on his recent book the politics of digital india that uncovers the politics and geopolitics of India's ongoing digital transformation. The book focuses on the pressures and pulls both local and transnational driving India's digital transformation and how the digital is fragmented and fragmenting across industries and sectors making it rather ubiquitous. And importantly the book also tackles the political economy of surveillance in India. that's increasingly being propelled by digital interactions involving the Indian state and its citizens here's pradeep thomas on the politics of digital india between local compulsions and transnational pressures your 10th book uh, and your previous books and works all revolve around uh, issues related to the media communications telecommunications in india and its effects can you you just give us give us a sense of how you became interested in this topic as you finished your phd and you began your first book and how that focus has evolved over time so it's a beautiful long story um so i studied at the university of leicester um in the kind of mid 80s and there was a place called the center for mass communication research there and that center was a kind of a you know left leaning center and the accent was on the political economy of communications right looking at the larger factors that determine broadcasting and journalism and all that kind of stuff right so my my teachers were you know really prominent figures in that field they were pioneers um and so i learned under them and and then i kind of when i went back to india to do my field work i kind of rediscovered india because i looked at the kind of real issues that were there in india right uh, caste and class and all that kind of stuff so 
I really never looked back from then. You know, my PhD was formative, and then all my writings have looked at the kind of, you know, the the gaps between ideological promise and institutional performance, right, in terms of the media. So that's exactly what I've done in the in the case of the digital. Previous to that, I've done work on broadcasting and all these kinds of things. But the digital is a is a wonderful um, topic to deal with because of the fact that you know it's it, it's kind of surrounded and embraced by promises, right? That you know, and the promises come from the state government as well as the private sector and industry, and and the promises are about you know a better life when you know the digital you know being the kind of holy grail and making all the difference in one's life and all the rest of it, right? Um, so adoption, innovation, all this kind of creativity, and so. What I, you know, as a political economist, I'm interested in, you know, in, in really understanding what the digital means in a country like India, right? Where, you know, even today, 50 to 60% of the community works in agriculture, where despite all the um, developments and growth in the IT industry and software and all this, it's still a small group of people. You're talking about a million plus or two or something, you know, and enclave led growth um, and you know so the focus for about 20 years has been on that right uh, and and you know and and I've kind of looked at that in context I'm a great believer in understanding these things in context right and, and the context of India is very special it's very unique um, you know it is a very stratified hierarchical society um, not everybody you know the trickle down is not as evident as it should be. Um, even if you look at, for example, the fact that that you know there's been a massive growth in mobile phones. You know, just the other day I was listening to someone, uh, researchers from Hyderabad, who were talking about the fact that they did a kind of countrywide study on the use of mobile phone by lower middle class women, right? And you know, it, there is no sense of women being empowered or agency or anything. Like, you know, this is like, you know, they are. You know they are dependent on on the, the male in the house, you know, to use that phone um, and and so on and so forth. Right? So the gaps are pretty evident, right? And 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 I really think that you know, in the context of COVID nineteen, the gaps have become even more evident. Right? And the reality is that you know it's it's all okay for kids in in cities, middle class kids, upper middle class kids who got access to the internet uh, and smartphones to get on with their online learning. That's not the case in rural India, right? Where people have, you know, have had tough times, right? And there've been cases of kids committing suicide because they've not been able to take classes because they didn't have access to smartphones and stuff. So, so there is an obvious, you know, there, these are obvious realities in India. And I like to deal with those realities. It's about poverty. It's about, you know, those kinds of caste-based oppressions. It's about those kinds of things playing up. It's part of the story of the digital. And one needs to deal with that story. So that's where I come from. So you're a political economist, but I'm struck by that as you, as you kind of wrote all those different books over the years, India has also been globalizing, right? And India is becoming more and more of a um, market power, a global, uh, an attractive market for 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 firms and other countries, um, and 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 my guess is that this book had to incorporate a lot of the global story. How did you sort of 
start incorporating that slowly over the last few books. And then, and then this one, I mean, it was right in the middle of this global transformation that was taking place as well. Not really. I've always been, you know, interested in the kind of the kind of the geopolitics of all this, right? Um, and I've always been a critic of the U.S. Meaning, meaning, you know, we've had a very India has had a very interesting relationship with the U.S. You know, as a, in terms of transfers of technology, in terms of support for our satellite industry, et cetera, et cetera. That's that's a long-standing, you know, that's been a you know that's a concern of mine. Um, we've had various dependencies, um, you know, on, on the U.S. They've not been really good allies. Sometimes they've not given us the technologies because they were really worried about dual use technologies, right? Uh, like for example, in the satellite program and stuff like that, or supercomputing and things like that. So yes, I've always had an interest in, especially the influence of the US. And of course, if you look at the digital, you know, again, we are tied to the US, you know, 85% um, of our software exports goes, goes to the US. Um, all our software engineers go to the US, right? I mean, of course, they go to other countries as well, but U.S. takes the bulk of these days, right? So that relationship I've always found interesting, and I've I've always thought that it's a kind of one-sided relationship, right? Um, and you know, so it's like, you know, India being doing all the back-end production, right? Indians being awake awake in the middle of the night because the U.S. follows a, <laughs> you, you know, uh, you know, it's that you know, it's, it's that kind of a relationship, right? That that. Um, and of course, it has benefited India, but I still think that um, it's a relationship that is that has been fraught, um, um, and that is where you know I, I strongly believe in you know the attempts to indigenize technology and all the rest of it. Um, I, I think is important. You know, I don't like the rhetoric around it, the hypernationalist rhetoric around it, but the need to to kind of um, um, establish our own credentials in terms of technology development, software development, um, strengthen our domestic uh, framework, you know, uh, in terms of the, all those, I think are fundamentally, fundamentally important. And yet I don't think we've, you know, again, there's a gap between the rhetoric and what we've achieved. Uh, before I get to, to this book, uh, I want to ask about your other recent book, um, Empire and Post-Empire Telecommunications in India. Uh, which was also published in 2019. Yeah. Um, it's it's a history of telecommunications in India, uh, and shows the continuities in terms of of telecom from the British Raj to current day. Uh, wh why is it important to historicize India's ongoing um, technological and digital transformation? And what aspects of that history do you think is is most important to make sense of what we're going through now? So. Um... You know, the reason why I wrote that book was because there was a, a gap in my writings in terms of the history of, of the media. Uh, it's not something that I've kind of dealt with at length previously. Um, so I happened to have a, a couple of months off um, and I was on a sabbatical. And, um, and, uh, and, and I decided that I was going to go to the UK and, and um, do some work on telecoms, on Indian telecoms, because, you know, the UK has got, you know, all their libraries, the British Library and you know, all the telecom stuff is there, you know, all the stuff from, um, from the empire, empire days, right? And I found, I found um, that whole process of, of, of looking at archival information really fascinating um, because the story of, um, 
the you know of 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 telecoms in india um, and that book is really it's it's a, actually quite a small book it has four chapters it looks at um, um i think it it begins with telegraph and then looks at cable oceanic cable looks at wireless um and then it has a substantive chapter on 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 telecoms in the new india kind of thing and you know in terms of continuities i think if you really look at um you know the the old days empire the british there was a guy called john pender for example who pretty much controlled the whole show right he controlled every aspect of the early telecom right um, you know the telegraph the the cable from he owned the ships that laid cables to um he manufactured those cables he was the first kind of media monopolist right and and you had you had those kinds of examples uh, and those ships were incredible you know my the cover of that book is of the you know ss eastern which was one of the biggest i think it was the biggest cable laying ship in the world right and they could actually take this thing out one shot they could lay cables you know across uh, you know across a, a a large piece of ocean kind of stuff right it was that it was it's you know so this guy you know was really involved in um you know in in globalizing uh, british telecommunications empire telecommunications and he played a fundamentally important role in keeping the empire together right um, and the british empire yes. so you know if you look at you know his history as as a as a monopolist and then you could look at for example the issue today in india where you have the ambani's the reliance for example right um you know similar similar story with massive amounts of investments you know vertical horizontal um integration of these you know in in all sorts of media industries plus of course petrochemicals this that all the rest of it and you're talking of massive global conglomerates right and 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 reliance too has got now major interest in oceanic cables uh although in in the context of dealing with oceanic cables it's tatas that is the number one company in the world in terms of you know um their ownership of oceanic cables and cable lines and all this so that's one story the second one is the fact that you know india telecommunications laws haven't changed much you know how key laws the 1885 telecoms act we still hold on to it right and is amazing it's like you know 100 years plus down the line we still holding on to an act that was established in 1885 to protect colonial interests right but the key thing with that was the right of the state to control and intercept intercept um you know data right and of course that's a right that the state you know whole, you know is 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 hugely involved massively involved in today right so you can see why they have not changed of course they went amended the act and all the rest of it but the mother act still remains in 1885 and i find that fascinating those are the continuities mm-hmm. you know a lot of continuities um in terms of you know how we do things today right that the british did then right and and we are still holding on to this and of course the, the crazy thing is you know we are part of a democracy uh, at least we think we are and yet we hold on to these you know the sedition law which is again another colonial thing which is you know you know you know, you know and we when we talk of anti nationals today that's it's, it's you know this is just politicized politicized stuff right the anti nationals then were people who were against the empire and things like that. 
the anti-nationals today are still Indians, right? They're citizens of India, right? So it's like, <clears throat> it's a complicated story. And, you know, I needed to kind of deal with that. The fact that there are those continuities, the simplicity. Yeah. So the fact that the state is so actively involved and embedded, centrally embedded in discussions around technology today is a, is a legacy of that history, which Absolutely. foregrounds the state at the center of, yeah. of these. Yeah, the state is, you know, the Indian state has always been involved in, in the development of infrastructure, right? Because remember that it was a huge challenge. I mean, I, you know, unquestionably, you know, this is a huge challenge for post-independent uh, state because, you know, until then, all this infrastructure was for the elites, right? Suddenly you had been in a situation where the state had to provide for its masses. So it was a huge challenge, right? At every level, no question. Whether it was broadcasting or the water supply or whatever, right? You, you name it. It was a massive challenge, you know? Um, and having said that, I think, you know, 60, 70 years down the line or 80 years down the line, um, you know, they've not done as well as they could have, right? Um, they've not kind of opened up these things, right? Especially broadcasting. Broadcasting has always been a state monopoly. Telecoms has always been a state, I mean, until they liberalized it, but still in terms of the powers that they have to control telecoms, you know, they're still very, you know, the state is still very powerful. So, and, and today with this kind of, you know, incredible power that the BJP and its allies have, you know, it's a very strong state. Um, increasingly that autocracy, you know, that, that you can see that they are you know, autocratic and that, that comes through, right? In, in many of their policies, right? And this continue, and, and I'm not again blaming this government, even the previous government was like that. You know, they tend to, broadcasting has always been seen as the, you know, fiefdom of the, of the state. Right. And which is why All India Radio and Doordarshan and others are, remain the way they are. Right. They are underfunded. You know, there are more engineers there than program makers. It's like that. Right. It's that kind of a situation that we're in. Um, so let's get to the book. Uh, the book looks at the politics of India's uh, digital society and digitalization. So what do you mean by digital and, and how does that manifest in India? What forms that are, are important? It's very difficult to kind of define um, the digital. Um, I think, you know, the way to deal with the digital is, is to look at it as part of a kind of mode of production, right? Which is based on, um, you know, the generation of data, the processing of data, the storage of data, right? That, that the whole thing is based on that. And there's an entire mode of production today that is based on that. So this the digital has invaded every productive sphere in India and elsewhere, right? Whether it's education or whether it's uh, agricultural, you name it, right? The health services, whatever. So, um, so the digital in, this, in that sense is, is, uh, is uh, I think, to a large extent, pretty revolutionary. Right? We've never seen anything like this. Right? We've never seen in the past, we lived in this analog era where we didn't have, um, you know, this type of, you know, this type of a mode of production that was kind of all consuming and, you know, that embraced every sector. And that, and that you know, it, it, at the end of the day, everything has been kind of, um, it reflects the image of the digital. Right? In any sector that you look at, everything is the you know reflects the image of the digital. 
But the beauty of the digital for me, and this is where I write about things like intellectual property and all the rest of it, is that it is fundamentally about the copy. It is fundamentally about the copy. Right? The digital, for the first time in the history of the world, we have something that can be accessible by everybody. Anyone connected can access to this podcast right? that you and I have in this conversation. Anyone, anyone connected, right? That is its beauty. The fact that, you know, you're not, you know, you, there's no scarcity here, right? The scarcity is artificial. The scarcity is, is made by the proprietors of software and the guys who manufacture this technology, right? I'm very interested in that. I'm very interested in the fact that here for the first time in, you know, the history of the world, we are, you know, we, we, we've got this, you know, we've got access to this amazing resource, right? Um, that that should be open to everybody. And the fact that it's not open and available is of concern. And that's what, you know, part of the book is about that, right? Um, and, and, and the reasons for that. So that's that's how I look at the digital. Digital, of course, you can, you can look at it very technically and all the rest of it, but I see it as, you know, it's part of our daily lives now, right? Uh, our lives are, you know, our quality of lives, people say, are determined, is determined by our access to the digital, access to software, all the rest of it, right? And this is where, of course, again, I'm very interested in the, in, in, in you know, people who access the digital in different ways, not in the formal sense, but in an informal sense, right? The people who access the digital through, say, we call it cultural piracy, right? Um, but the argument there is they are, you know, you know, their access is being democratized because of the fact that they have, you know, they, they are dealing with copied products, right? Uh, these are not original products, copied products. It doesn't matter at all. It really doesn't matter. At end of the day, you know, they're having the same, they're becoming digital literates like the rest of us. And in fact, many of them are even, you know, much better than some of us in terms of, you know, they know how to innovate. They know how to, they know how to be creative with their technologies. They know how to open a mobile phone and, and fix it, you know? So, you know, they, 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 you know, they have more than functional knowledge of the use of these technologies. You know, they can, they can tinker with it. You know, they understand the right to repair as a movement, right? So those, I find, you know, that, that is part of India. Right? The story of India and the digital in India is not just about the digital in the formal economy, but the digital in the informal economy. Mm -hmm. right? And that is a fascinating story. And although books have been written about it, I think there's a lot more that can be written about. So, so let's get to the, the core part of the book, which looks at the political economy of, yeah. of digital India, right? And how uh, aspects of that digital India are being negotiated, shaped and contested by different political and geopolitical considerations, um, including um, actors like the state, the private sector, um, civil society, and how they're all um, working to control this, this digital space. So how do you, I mean, given how vast this digital expanse is, how do you even begin to map uh, this political economy? So I basically what I've done is in the in the book what I've done is I've looked at it in, in two sections. Okay, now although you know I've been a critic of the state uh, in India for a long time, much before the BJP government came into being, um, I think you know the state in India is a very ambivalent entity, meaning 
that you can't, you know, you can't say that the state is this or the state is that. State is very, you know, has got, you know, many legs and many feet. And it's like an octopus, right? There are, you know, many things to the state, right? And sometimes the state can be extraordinarily autocratic in the way it deals with things. Sometimes it can actually be very liberating. Um, sometimes it, it helps our citizens get, you know, you know, strengthen their freedoms and, and things like that. So for example, it was a state in India that pushed for the right to information legislation, which is a brilliant legislation, I think, right? So there are, there are moments in the history of the state, especially when it comes to the media where, you know, um, you know they've, been, they've been kind of ambivalent in their attitude towards, you know, um, the US and US demands from the US or demands from the World Trade Organization and all the rest of it. And a good area to look at is intellectual property, you know, intellectual property itself, where you know they are, they are, they are in, you know they're interested in protecting protecting their own interests. Um, you know, occasionally there's of course a raid against you know you know when there's you know issues around cultural piracy, but they're not as committed to all that as they could be, right? So the first part of the uh, of the book is about the strong state, the surveillance state, and all the rest of it. The second part is where, you know, they've let their guard down and they're not as, you know, as, you know, you know they're, they're kind of like, like a desical with respect to how they deal with intellectual property. And, you know, I've got that chapter on the seed and it's, 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 a, it's a, you know, it's fascinating that, you know, they've not gone after the farmers who use copy seed because they can't do it. Those are, that's the kind of their water base. They're not going to do it, right? So it's a it's an interesting and then of course their stance with respect to um, you know the, the treaty on um, the world you know the WIPO treaty on access for the visually um, you know you know visually impaired right those are and and the fact that for example they changed their the copyright laws in India even before the WIPO laws um, in support of people with visual impairments you know and the fact that now you know. That, that, that people who have got visual impairments do not have to take permission um, from copyright holders if they want to kind of create their own formats of a book, right? All those things are pretty progressive. You know, you've got to hand it to the state, you know, uh, and, and which is, so, so the book is in two parts, one where the state is in control and, you know, you know acting like um, the British did in, you know, during the empire in the old days. And the other part is about the state being rather, you know, laid back uh, with respect to some issues, right? Or actually taking a stance and being very progressive. So I wanted to bring the two together. Um, so, and that's what I tried to do in, in the book. But it's it's like, you know, it's, it's a, you know, it, I mean, especially if you look at it today, you realize that the state is, it's that control state that comes into play, right? They, 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 that seems to be the, the dominant stance, the do dominant position of the state. Uh, there aren't any. There's, there isn't anything that is progressive, you know, um, at the, at this particular moment in time. But having said that, there have been moments when the state has played a fundamentally important role in 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 pushing the boundaries, um, supporting their own interests, uh, supporting indigenous interests, supporting the interests of the farmers, and, and so on and so forth. Right. So, so just, uh, I mean, you mentioned data earlier. And I think data is really kind of front and center in most discussions around the digital in India uh, now. And the state is implicated in discussions on data 
and how data should be covered. Um, is, is data a sovereign asset? Yeah, I, I think that's a fascinating question. Um, is it a sovereign asset? Um, I think, you know, you've got to look at it in, in the context of um, these major players, uh, platforms that are there, you know, Amazon and Facebook and all the rest of it. And the fact that data has been commodified and monetized, right? And you've got to look at data sovereignty in the context of that grand monetization that has happened uh, pretty much under the radar and they've got away with it. And, you know, it's only over the last, say, maybe a decade or so that governments have woken up to the fact that these guys are, you know, playing havoc with data, right? And having a merry time with data and, and making a lot of money out of the country. So I, I strongly believe in things like data sovereignty and, and things like that, right? I think states should have the, uh, you know, the, you know, they should have the right to protect, you know, local data, localization of data, all that is, I think, important. But there's a caveat thing that I think, you know, data sovereignty in the context of the EU um, very clearly expressed um, in, you know, is, is very different from data sovereignty in India where things are not as clearly expressed, right? So the question in India is, yes, data sovereignty is fine, but if it's data sovereignty in, you know, in, and the state controlling the data, that's not a good idea. If it's data sovereignty and reliance controlling that data, that's also not a good idea. So the whole issue of, you know, are there independent mechanisms to deal with this kind of data sovereignty, right? Are there ombudspersons, you know, you know, independent institutions, organizations, are they investing in that? No, the reality is no, they're not doing that. So it's more kind of a rhetorical hyper-nationalist stuff, right? And the data sovereignty also comes from the fact that, you know, they've suddenly got worried after Trump got, you know, pushed by Twitter and Facebook and all the rest of it. Suddenly, you know, even for Prime Minister Modi, Twitter is a big deal. You know, he's on that Twitter all the time, right? And they, you know, suddenly they got worried the fact that Twitter can actually close down, close the tap kind of thing, right? So these are these are issues of concern for these demagogues and, and these guys in, in, in the BJP and, and, and the allied parties and all the rest of it. But, you know, having said that, I think, you know, if, if data sovereignty is really, um, what should, is, is thought through, it can be a very interesting, um, you know, it, 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 it can actually contribute to the, to national development, I think. You know, the fact that we keep our data, you know, and we control it. But the issue is, you know, at what level do you, you know, will communities have the right to control their data? You know, it's a complex, right? Uh, data sovereignty. So, you know, in, in, and I don't think we've got examples of uh, this from anywhere around the world of people actually protecting their data. Um, you know, even in the EU, which has got very interesting, you know, data sovereignty policies and all the rest of it, their GDPR and all the rest of it, but they don't have, uh, you know, they, they don't, you know, we're yet to learn from all these things, right? It's an evolving thing, right? These are, for example, in the EU, they've got something called the right to be forgotten, right? Amazing, amazing to think of that, right? But, you know, do we, you know, how, how is it going to be implemented, right? Um, so there are, you know, um, I do a lot of work on, I've been doing a lot of work on the, the taxing, the Google tax, right? Um, how do you tax um, transactional value between two consumers or a business and a consumer or us on WhatsApp, you know, and all the rest of it. It's just tough. It's really difficult to do these things, right? 
So the, all these things are evolving as we speak, right? Um, and but but I think you know um, you know at the end of the day, I'm a firm believer in data sovereignty. I don't like the idea of these mega companies, you know, you know, taking their data wherever, you know, um, taking data from India to the U.S. and monetizing it there or whatever. All these kinds of things that they're doing, um, because at the end of the day, data is a, a personal thing, right? Um, we have a you know a personal data bill that's in the offing in India. Now again, the question is, you know, will that bill have teeth? Will it support common interests? Or will it support state interests in terms of you know, or the interests of their friends, like the Ambani's and the Adani's and all these kinds of characters who kind of kind of you know taken over large bits of the country, right? So, so yeah. um, you know, and, and I kind of see the localization narrative as a way to reclaim some of that power from the big tech companies, right? Um, but is that is that sufficient? You think is that enough? Is that, um, I mean, you, I guess, in one way, you also tend to shoot your own entrepreneurs and kind of small and medium sized enterprises. Um, so, so want to get think, bigger, right? I mean, how do you balance that? So, I think, Karthik, I think what's interesting here is the focus of the Indian government in terms of data localization is, is squarely on these five or six global corporations, Amazon, um, you know, um, Google, you know, Facebook, Twitter, all these guys. They're not focused on the local use, right? at least for the moment, right? So, so at the moment, data localization means, you know, you know it, it really has to do with, it, it really is about controlling what these big five, the big guys can do in India. And, and controlling that. It's not focused on you know, local startups in India, local platforms. And it's also not focused on the Ambani's of this world because they, they are sitting on, you know, they've got huge resources, right? They're sitting on top of huge data, you know, data banks and all the rest of it. It's not, it, it's, they're, not, they're not part of the picture at all at the moment. And they probably will never be part of the picture because of the fact that they're too closely connected to the government, right? So that's the reality, right? So it's not going to affect now, on the one hand, you know, they want local guys to come up. So, for example, there's a guy called uh, Baba Ramdev. You may have come across Baba Ramdev. He's a, he's a kind of a god, god man, local god man. But he's also an entrepreneur, right? He's got this massive, uh, you, know, you know, food and beverages, all that kind of an outlet called Patanjali, Ayurveda. And, of course, his deal is that, you know, his products are purer than other products because it's all based on Ayurveda, which is, again... You know, a lot of bullshit, but 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 you know people believe in this, right? And he's taken the big guys, you know, he's really taken on the big guys, right? And he's he's become national in scope. He's like multi-millionaire in terms of the stuff. He also was trying to bring out his own platforms, like you know, to compete with Twitter and, and things like that, right? So the government supports all these kinds of things. It hasn't gone anywhere. But he was trying to do that. So there's a lot of support for local to locals to come up with their own platform, social media platforms and, and things like that. Um, will it work? I don't know. It may. Um, but again, that's to be seen. So. In the book, you, you also argue that the political economy of surveillance is important. 
um, particularly when we're trying to make sense of um, India's neoliberal growth. Right? Um, are we at an inflection point now in terms of surveillance in India with the recent Pegasus revelations? Uh, and as you mentioned, the delay and the dragging of a legislative framework that protects privacy and a state that to me at least appears unconstrained or unburdened in its quest to um, own the data of its citizens. Um, where do we go from here? Well, you know, surveillance also is a, is, a, is a tough one to deal with because, you know, there's a, on the one hand, you can say that surveillance is something that all states are involved in, right? They have the right to be involved in surveillance because, you know, that's part of, you know, that's part of what a state does, right? And they're involved in the surveillance of their enemies and geopolitically with their neighbors and all that kind of stuff. At any given time, they're also, you know, they're involved in, you know, surveilling uh, populations of interest, like like terrorists and, and so on and so forth. Right? There's a legitimate reason for surveillance. But the question really is when, when surveillance becomes the, um, you know, an all-powerful tool used by the government to, to kind of curb any type of dissent, right? Any kind of questioning of authority, right? Then it becomes hugely problematic. But then, then we shouldn't call ourselves a democracy. It's as simple as it. Don't call India a democracy, right? You, you call yourself a totalitarian state. Then you can do this and you can get away with it. But if you're a democracy and you, you know, you're proud of the fact that India is the largest democracy in the world and all that, then I think you've got to abide by the rules of democracy. And one of the things is that, you know, you've got to treat citizens as, you know, like they should be treated. Right? You shouldn't be intruding into their personal lives. You couldn't, you shouldn't be thinking that an entire group of people are, are suspect because they are of the wrong religion or, you know, or things like that, right? And then what right do you have? Or, or because of the fact that they dissent or because of the fact that they help um, the uh, local uh, tribal people in India, right? Uh, who, who are at the bottom of the ladder, you know, the bottom of the, you know, those are the guys who, you know, have it really tough because the people are interested, the corporates are interested in their land because they're sitting on top of rich resources. The state is interested in their land and they're being dispossessed, right? So anyone who's, who, you know, who fights on their behalf are now, now seen as anti-nationals. And you know they have you know, the sedition laws are brought against them. They're put into prison. Of course, recently, uh, uh, you know, an 84-year-old Jesuit father, Stan Swami, you know, died in prison because of COVID, right? And he was put in there again. This is where, you know, the surveillance comes in, right? All these people have been put into prison uh, because of things like Pegasus, right? This type of software that has been, you know, you know, obviously governments have got this and they know how to deal, you know, they use it, you know, very selectively against their so-called enemies, the anti-nationals, right? I think all that is hugely problematic, uh, hugely, hugely problematic. Because, you know, at the end of the day, you are, you know, basically you're murdering your own people, right? Just because they've raised their voices and said things that you don't believe in, right? Um, or said something critical of, of the prime minister or, or, or his government or whatever, right? And that's, that's really sad. That's not the India that I, I grew up in, and I feel that that you know that that that's not the India that, you know, um, 
you know, that's not the India that, that should be recognized in the world today, right? We've got so much else to offer, so, so much to offer, right? And yet it is, at the moment, it's, it's a government that seems to be uncertain of itself, right? Unsure of itself, and therefore investing in all this surveillance, you know, everybody is seen as an enemy kind of thing, right? Which is really problematic. So yes, surveillance has got many sides to it. The one side, yeah, I completely agree that the, you know, they should invest in it and make sure that the terrorists are caught before they act. You right? I have no problem with that. But at the same time, you know, they should be judicious about how they use this these technologies, right? And and the fact that, you know, to be critical is a good thing, right? Uh, to hold a hold a state or a government accountable is a good thing, right? But but this uh, they've got unparalleled power at the moment, and 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 basically, you know, governments that are have got this power always acted like this. I mean, the previous Congress government, at the time of Mrs. Gandhi, there was an emergency, you know, for two or three years where she became really autocratic, you know, three years of autocratic rule. Um, it is very similar, very similar to what's happening today. Right? It's the same, you know, complete power. We have the power. Nobody else has got any power. You can't, you know, you can't say anything as the government. Shut them up, you know, shut the, put the journalists in jail, right? And it's not only a central issue with the central government, but it's also an issue with state governments, right? Uh, you know, they use the sedition law, they put people in. It's nuts. Uh, most of what we generally hear about digital technologies in India, are positive, right? They are extolled for their impact and uh, potentials. Um, but, but as you point out, we also have to be cautious given their exclusionary and discriminatory nature. Um, but there's also a growing desire, not at least within government, to use the digital technology uh, as a tool to address India's development gaps. Um, in areas like agriculture, energy, transportation. Um, and there, there has been talk of developing AI tools to help the Indian state uh, fill some of these gaps. Uh, is this viable as an approach? See, on the one hand, you know, I, I, you know, I really do support the government because these are things that the government has to do. Um, at the end of the day, the government has the most amount of resources. It is at the end of the day a welfare state. It's going to be dealing with, you know, 300, 350 million people who, you know, have, you know, who simply depend on the state for food, for resources, for employment. That's a large amount of people. Right. So on the one hand, I think the building of infrastructure is something that, you know, that's the state's uh, you know, purview that they've got, you know, that's why they're there you know, to build infrastructure, whether it's roads or whether it's digital access or all that kind of stuff, digital infrastructure, yes. You know, whether it's an agriculture, whether it's, I think those are important things, you know, there's no question. You know? Um, the issue of course is that, you know, you can't have a one size fits all solution in a country like India, right? The Indian, unfortunately in India, I think all our tech, tech people and our government, you know, they're all hardcore technological determinants who believe in technology as the you know, solution to the country's problems, right? Sim that simply is not gonna work. Technology is not going to um, you know, ensure that caste disappears, right? Technology is not going to ensure that the Dalit um, 
can use uh, the mobile phone freely without having to you know without having to look behind the shoulders to see if a high caste person is looking at him or whatever you know technology is go not going to solve those kinds of issues right technology is not going to you know solve the huge gender issue that we have now, right so it's at that level that there's a problem right this belief that yeah let's have the you know you know high speed train you know like like you know the, the bullet train and that will solve the problems yeah yeah sure it does you know for some people right of distance and all the rest of it but the millions of other people you know you, so it's it's a question of balance right it's a question of do they do they also bring in good policies social policies right supportive of access supportive of the, the things that support you know affordable access to these digital technologies or are they investing in smart cities and all these kinds of things that are only for small enclaves of people right? so it's that it's it's at that level that there's a problem right so you know i think the fact that they investing the digital or digital india these are fundamentally important things right we need to have i mean the whole question of the aadhar identity you know the singular you know id for everybody and all that i mean there are pros and cons here right but if they begin to kind of link aadhar to everything else that you do in your life right that that's when it becomes problematic that's when you know they can use this selectively against certain communities and all the rest of it and they can do it because they have you know their ideologues of the you know the hindutva ideologues have openly expressed their desire to make india hindu right and and all these other other kinds of things right it's at that level that that there's a problem right there's no um larger you know what should i say inclusive thinking about what the digital can do right Uh, in terms of infrastructure because it can do so many good things right? so many wonderful things that can come out of access right but i think it's there that you know these people flounder and they don't have the kinds of clear policies so uh, pradeep what, what was the hardest and most satisfying part of writing the book um yeah i mean like um surveillance is you know is is an interesting issue but to get real data about how actually surveillance actually works is is more difficult right um and you only get that information after something happens right um i'd love to kind of understand how these things work in real life um and much of that book you know was done through desk based research right i did a couple of interviews but not as many and of course it's one thing interviewing people in india right and and uh, and getting that kind of information at least now there are a number of really good think tanks and you know um uh, tech think tanks and all the rest of it there and they are they are extraordinary in terms of the work that they do right so there's a lot of people out there who are knowledgeable um so the, you know on the one hand yeah i could have done more work in that area of of trying to get first hand information uh, from some people you know I did a couple of had a couple of conversations, but not as many as I would have liked to. Um, the one on seed I really liked the chapter on seed because that's where you know I'm firm believer in in the copy, um, and 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 you know those kinds of things excite me and and you know and they they you know they make me want to do more work in certain areas. Um, so yeah, I mean it's so I I you know I wrote a book on on digital India in two thousand twelve. 
and that was part of a trilogy of books uh, that you know the first book was on the political economy of communications then i looked at communication rights movements in india and then i looked at digital india so there were three books that came pretty much you know one year after another kind of and um, so this book really connects to that digital india which was the last book in the trilogy um and it kind of expands some of those deals with some of those issues that i didn't really look at um so yeah that's how it is i mean I, that's how i write you know when and one thing is go to you know one thing goes to another kind of thing that's how i do most <laughs> and and finally what are you working on now so um i i've uh, so again like i said you know I, that's that's the way i write i kind of you know um you know when i when i write something i i'm always thinking of writing something else connected to that so with with this particular book um i you know i already thought of writing something about information infrastructure in india and looking at you know satellites and cable oceanic cable and these kinds of things and so that book is coming out in early um in early january 2022 and that's also with oxford university um and then um i've also been looking at the the regulation of platforms um so i've done a manuscript four case studies the european union india australia and in the usa of how they're dealing with digital you know regulation of platforms that's being reviewed at the moment um so you know that's these are you know to me I, when i look at all these things it's kind of a natural progression right mm-hmm. from the stuff that i've written you know um and, and i'm glad i'm doing this because you know i'm glad i have got that interest because it keeps me getting out of mischief you know keeps me out getting involved in things that i shouldn't be doing so this this is good this is good this is a good way of spending time really so very thank you so much thank you kartik um i hope uh, this has been useful um and uh, and anytime you want any extra information please get in touch with me and that was pradeep thomas the author of the politics of digital india between local compulsions and transnational pressures i'm karthik nachipan and you've been listening to the lake podcast